the Bible, God's good book. God's first book in his book of books cuts through the inflation of human nonsense every time. God himself identifies himself throughout the whole Bible as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when we check these dudes out, what do we find? God's funny family. And they are as dysfunctional as it gets, just like us, which is kind of good news. Well, anyhow, uh, we are in Genesis chapter 37, and God now has a cup of joe for our daily bread. Coffee and toast, God's style. Come on in, let's check it out. to the Biblical channel. Always glad somebody's listening in because we just want people to read their Bibles better. Um, the Bible rings the chamois of, of our lives to its fullest and, and helps us to wring out the nonsense and get rid of, you know, what we don't need. It's the best book that humans have ever had in their possession. It is in every country. It is in every nationality. It is the answer to the human soul, to the human person. And that's why we want to get the word out. So we just want you to sound like the smartest person in the room when it comes to uh, talking about God. And we want you to experience God as God has given himself to be experienced. It's all good. And that's why we're here. Anywho, God's book God's book is truly unlike anything that humans have ever seen on so many levels. It, it just hits all the, or ticks all the right boxes, and it is truly unmatched when it comes to religious documents or anything, anything. Yeah, humans have made it, but boy, there is something divine that humans cannot have put together in this thing. Anyhow, humanity constantly imagines heroes having some sort of extraordinary skills. But when God imagines a hero, he imagines average Joes and Josephines, you know, for his story. We're the ones who tend to be unrealistic. God is the one who is always realistic. God, not only is he realistic, but God understands our troubles. When it comes to us, we tend to ignore our troubles. God, he knows how to save us. We think we know how to save us. Well, anyhow, and we think that we can save ourselves. But God's book, God's book actually helps us to get real. Like God is for real, you know? And God is going to introduce to us an average Joe an average cup of joe to see the hero that we all really need, and ultimately, that is God. Well, anyhow, before we dive into Genesis chapter 37, let us pray like the Lord Jesus taught us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. 
Hi, there's the rub. We come here to see Jesus and him only. So let's dive into this, uh, Genesis chapter 37, and let's, let's read with a bit of a sense of humor so that we can, you know, get the most out of this message because God's putting together some funny stuff, and, and we are meant to laugh as we read the Bible, laugh at ourselves, laugh at the world, and get a great idea as to why God is the one we all need. Anyhow, let's move forward. So our text begins just like this in verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that, that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they couldn't speak peacefully to him. Joseph, he had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. All right, let's just stop right there and digest what's going on here. So number one, Jacob is finally in the place that he's supposed to be, and that is good news. He's supposed to be in the land of his father and his father's father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is, you know, part of the promise that God has made, and he is supposed to be where he's supposed to be. We covered that last week when, you know, he's not where he's supposed to be. Bad things happen. And now we're told he is where he's supposed to be, so that's good news. And then the text says something funny. These are the generations of Jacob. As soon as he, the text, the narrator says, these are the generations of Jacob, well, the star of Jacob's story is actually going to be Joseph. And what I mean by that is, is that the Joseph story is going to occupy the rest of Genesis. And the Joseph story ends up being the longest story of an individual in the old part of the Bible, except for Moses. Only Moses gets more space in the book, the good book, God's book of books. You know, only Moses gets more space than Joseph. So Joseph is a huge character. So the Joseph that we meet up with here is a young man. He's 17 years old, and he works for his, uh, well, his, his brothers that are actually Bilhah's and Zilpah's sons. That's what the text means there. But let's be honest. I think that most people, the impression that they get of Joseph first is that he's a tattletale, that he's a spoiled brat, that he's kind of on the obnoxious side. Um, I think that we're you know, meant to have that reaction because I think it's the most common reaction. You know, we kind of smell you know, a bit of a fink here in Joseph, you know, a bratty, snotty nose, tattletale, you know, seems a bit obnoxious and all of that. Um, and perhaps that's because there's something wrong with us because the, the narrator in this story has not made that kind of a point. The narrator has been pretty flat with the facts, just the facts, if you know what I mean. And there's really no ding on Joseph in the opening of this scene. It's only our worldly reaction that starts to smell a rat in little Joseph. But no, there's no ding here on Joseph. He's just being a good son. 
Yeah, he reports problems like a good son should, especially with these blokes. We just came off of not too long ago looking at how dastardly these boys can be. They are vindictive. They are vengeful. They're a tough crowd. So it's not a huge surprise that there is a bad report. And, well, Joseph is just simply reporting the facts as far as we know. And the facts are he gave a bad report on the brothers. They're not doing their job or something like that. And the text doesn't say that he bragged about being loved more. The text tells us that his father, Israel, Jacob, loved him more. That's not his fault, you know. What is he supposed to do, correct his father? I mean, come on, man, he's 17 years old. That's not going to happen. He's just being a good son. He's not bragging about it. And then, you know, when it comes to the dreams, it seems like maybe he's being obnoxious about it. But the fact is, we're not told that he's being obnoxious. He's just telling dreams. And let's remember that this is a family that has a history of having dreams that God gives. You know, everybody should be aware of the dreams that God has given Jacob, their father, the dreams that, that, that have been given to Isaac, their grandfather, and the dreams that have been given to Abraham, their great-grandfather. This is a family thing, and they shouldn't be surprised that a dream comes down the pipe. Even if it's a dream that they don't particularly agree with, they ought to be quite used to the idea that God might give somebody a dream. So there's really no ding on Joseph in this story. That's the big point. It's a story of the world's misplaced priorities. That's right. The story itself is about the misplaced priorities that are so common in this world. It's a story that most people, as soon as they hear it, they smell a rat in Joseph because there's something wrong with us. You know, there's something wrong with us because we all readily agree that snitches get stitches, right? The old pirate's cove or, you know, code or, or the, uh, you know, the, the uh, I guess the, the Pledge of Allegiance of, of, of our darker side. Snitches get stitches, you know, and then I love, you know, how, you know, those who are really committed to bad find it, you know, okay to steal and murder, but snitches get stitches, you know. I mean, there's something about us all that this story starts tapping into right from the beginning. And then if you didn't get the sense that Joseph, you know, was maybe a little bit of a rat, if, if you got the sense that he was annoying, um, that he was a bit of a tattletale and a spoiled brat and obnoxious, you know, and, and, and by the way, when it comes to that coat that his father made for him, what's he supposed to do? Say, no, thank you, dad. He's supposed to wear the coat. He's being a good son, right? But then there's some that'll read the story, and, and maybe that's equally problematic because some might read the story and say, oh, Joseph is perfect. He's, he's exactly the perfect human being. And if you're seeing Joseph that way too, that's probably problematic because that means you're probably, well, that type of a person, a tattletale, spoiled brat, a bit obnoxious, you know, something like that. So we need to just stay as neutral as we can here. We, you know, we don't want to put uh, Joseph into the pigeonhole of, of being a brat, and we don't want to put him into the pigeonhole of being, you know, the perfect son. He is being a good son. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not given any information to form any other conclusions other than he's just a 17-year-old boy, um, you know, dealing the cards that have been dealt to him, and it seems like he's dealing with the cards that have been dealt to him in a, in a sincere and honest way. That's That's all. 
Anyhow, the story, though, the story that we are meant to see and start sinking our teeth into is a story of jealousy, a story of unchecked, unrighteous anger, self-righteousness that leads to jealousy, and it looks to other people with scorn that are just simply doing better than you. This is a story that we can almost smell it. And we do, I understand, we know this story kind of off by heart in many ways, especially because there's been a play, you know, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, so, the, you know, there's a rough idea of how this story goes. But we can smell fratricide on the horizon. We can smell Cain and Abel behind the scenes once again. It seems like deja vu all over again. We just feel the tension in the air that fratricide is coming. It kind of reminds us of Beth and Jamie in that show Yellowstone. Man, those two drive me crazy, right? I mean, like what gives the hatred between? And I don't even think that Jamie's the hater, you know? It seems like, you know, Beth is the hater, but it's that same kind of thing where you're, you're scratching your head and saying, why all the hatred? But then as soon as you say, why all the hatred? You kind of know intuitively why there's so much hatred, because this is the way many families go, man. I'm an only child, and I wanted a brother and a sister all my life, but man, when I read this story, I kind of think that maybe I was better off. Maybe I wouldn't have been a good brother. Maybe I wouldn't have had a good brother. You know, something like that, because this is a story of the human heart and the human condition. And there is nobody like God in the Bible that understands the human condition. The other thing that this story is, the story of bad parenting. I mean, Joseph, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob, rather, Israel, come on. Do you not, I mean, aren't you just driven crazy if you remember his own parents, how his own parents divided the household by showing favoritism towards a son? You remember Isaac had his favorite son, Esau, and, and Rebecca had her favorite son, Jacob, and that just wrecked the family. This, this thing we can sense is just, you know, this is a family train wreck. This is a story of bad parenting, and one has to scratch their head and say, couldn't you learn from your mistakes, which is also, I think, part of the huge lesson in this story. Why don't we learn from our mistakes? Why don't we learn from other people's mistakes? Can you imagine the world around us if everybody learned from their own mistakes and the mistakes of others? I mean, seriously, just that one point. If we just learned from the mistakes of others, can you imagine how much better off this world would be? But there's something about the human condition that just doesn't learn from others' mistakes. And oftentimes, we don't even learn from our own mistakes. Well, anyhow, that is the driving story behind all of this. It's a story of how family, family can turn quite brutal on the inside. Uh, and, and it's a story, really, that reveals how God understands and he knows our troubles. God knows the trouble we're in. And if he knows the trouble that we're in and he knows the troubles that we experience on a real-time basis, then he knows how to fix them as well. And he knows how to save us 
from our troubles. And that's part of the confidence building in here is that God reveals that he's very aware of the problems of the world. And if he is very aware of the problems of the world, then he's very aware of the solution, the fix, you know, that kind of thing. The Bible explains human behavior far better than Freud ever could or Nietzsche ever could because God understands the human beings that he has made. And God also knows that family was designed to be the sweetest thing on earth. And when, all, when things are going well in family, there is nothing sweeter on the planet than family. You know, if you ask anybody on the street, no matter how bad their life is, what the most important thing is, they're probably going to say family. But then if you peel back the layers and look into the way that we treat family and the way that some people have been treated in their family and the real story of a lot of the families that we know, even the families that we're a part of, we know intuitively that as much as family can be the sweetest place on earth, family can also be the worst place on earth if things aren't going well at all. If the family goes bad, it's the worst thing on the planet and the worst thing in our lives, no doubt. Okay, well, the text moves forward. And, and here we have Joseph's two dreams. He says, Joseph says to them, hear this dream that I've, been, that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose up and stood upright. Behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaves. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers. And he said, Behold, I've had another dream. And behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And he said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Well, once again, the idea here is that we have seen God's funny family at work. And despite how funny God's family has been, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their kids, well, it's also very clear that this is a family where God speaks to them fairly, you know, frequently, or at least semi-often in a dream. It's not outside of their box. It's completely inside of their box. And even if they don't like the dream, you would think, right? There's my favorite line. You would think, you know, you would think that this family of dreams with a, you know, a family lineage of big dreams from a God who claims to be the real God of the universe, okay? You would think that they would pay attention and keep their mouths shut, even if it's a dream that they don't particularly like, you know, because, you know, Jacob's fully aware of how his mother received a dream that his father did not, you know, received words from God that his father did not like, and then that turned into a disaster. But the the dreams here, you know, it's funny how everybody's responding so poorly. I just, you know, you would think that they would respond better, but they don't. 
the the dream, at least the first dream, reinforces um, what Daddy was thinking to begin with. So we we kind of see that the first dream, Dad didn't have anything bad to say about that because, well, Joseph's his favorite child. So you know, sure, you know, sounds like a good dream, son. You know, I guess. I mean, we don't know that the text doesn't say that, but we don't find Dad, you know, arguing against the first dream. The brothers, they hate the dream, and so again. We see characters here. We see the 11 or, well, the 10 brothers at work here. And, and the 10 brothers are actually, when they hate his dreams, they're actually showing how spiritually dim-witted they really are. And this has been, you know, part of the, the family. Um, this is part of a, this is a family problem. You know, they're oftentimes spiritually dim-witted. And so that's clearly the case here that they don't really, you know, I mean, the truth is they don't really hate Joseph's, you know, dream as much as they hate the possibility that maybe God did give them that dream, which means that they might be on the verge of not liking God very much. Well, that first dream did reinforce what daddy was already thinking since Joseph was his favorite child already. But daddy did not expect the second dream. And daddy seems a little bit perturbed at the second dream. The second dream has mom, dad, and the brothers bowing down before Joseph. And even, you know, this seems a bit much for old Jacob to take. And he's like, are you kidding me? I'm supposed to bow down to you. I'm the father. I'm not supposed to bow down to you. Well, there's the two dreams. Um, and the reality of the two dreams, well, the dream is going to come true. And we know that. We know that because of the play. We know that because this is one of the most popular storylines in the Bible. We do know that this dream is going to end up coming true. I don't want to give away any spoiler alerts or anything like that, but this part of the dream, it is going to come true. And we'll get to that eventually. And it's going to be true for the whole family as well. But it's not going to be true for the future blessing because we have to remember that God has told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they will, you know, out of their loins, out of their family, out of, out of their possession, the real blessing of kingship, that nations of kings will, you know, that there will be kings and queens that come from them, okay? So one thing that is not going to come, you know, is not being said in these dreams is the reality of the future kings, and the reality, again, I don't want to do a spoiler alert here. You can you know, pan forward if you want and go look at uh, the blessings at the end of Genesis to see who does get the blessing of kingship, um, but it's not Joseph. Joseph will not be the bearer of kings in the 12 tribes or the 12 sons and the blessings that they receive. Again, no spoiler alerts yet. We'll keep the tension moving in the story. So part of the dream, you know, this dream is definitely going to come true in a real way for the family, but it's not going to come true in the sense of who will bear the kings. That information will come out later. So just wait for it. Okay, so now the text moves on. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. Joseph said, here I am which is the biblical way of saying, I'm ready, dad. Good son. Yeah. So he says to him, go now, see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man 
found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. He said, well, and then Joseph said, please tell me, where are they pasturing their flock? And the man said, well, they've gone away, um, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Okay, so there's something interesting that happens here, a couple of interesting things. Number one, you know, jo uh, Jacob, Israel, has every right to be concerned that the brothers have gone up to shepherd their flocks up near Shechem. I mean, we just heard what happened in Shechem in the last talk. If you haven't heard that, go back a talk and listen to that one. Okay, so Shechem and the, you know, the absolute disaster at Shechem. You would think, once again, you would think, you would think that Shechem would be off limits. You would think that, you know, there's no way that those brothers would go close to Shechem. You would think that Jacob would make Shechem off limits, you know, for their family for a long time. They caused so much trouble. That uh, vigilantism, you know, that murderous rampage that they went on. Well, apparently in, in, in their righteous anger, uh, but, you know, not directed by God. Uh, but anyhow, it's so surprising that the boys go up to Shechem. And so we can almost sense that there is trouble coming because Shechem has been a massive place of trouble. So we feel like trouble is probably coming. And if we feel like trouble is coming, then we're right. And then the other thing is, is this man that finds, you know, Joseph walking or wandering around in the fields. This man seems to come out of nowhere. And it seems like, you know, Joseph, you know, is, is you know, kind of lost and dumbfounded as to what to do next. And a man appears out of nowhere and says, hey, what are you looking for? And when he says, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. And it just so happens that this man overheard his brothers say that he's heading to Dothan. And at this point, the narrator is, is, is having some fun with us because at this point, we've got to start asking that question. Is this a coincidence or is this providence? Coincidence or providence? So it's more foreshadowing, foreshadowing that God is actually in on this thing. And God is actually on the move with Joseph. As soon as Joseph can't find the brothers, God makes sure that Joseph can find the brothers. So God is in this thing. Providence is what we should go with, not coincidence. Um, but in, in it all, we, we get the sense that, you know, God has given us his man, Joseph, here. And Joseph has no particular skills. <laughs> He's wandering around. He's easily lost. But that's part of the point because God gives us an average Joe. God is soon to be the hero. Not quite yet, but God gives us an average Joe like he always gives us an average Joe because all biblical heroes are actually in the end God. Every character in the Bible that we want to make into a hero is not the hero. The hero, the character, is actually God. God is the hero. The characters are average Joes. That's the way the Bible always works. The characters that God gives us are always average people. And it's God who does the heavy lifting in the story. And, and the lesson here is that every human being as average and as ordinary as they are, 
become extremely special when God is actually their hero. And that forms an amazing part of the biblical message. This is what makes God truly unbelievable, but believable, because I want to believe it, that an average Joe like me, an average Joe like you, becomes simply special to God because God is our hero. And so that's the movement of this text. You know, Joseph is nothing special, but that's part of the brilliance, part of the beauty in the text, because I'm nothing special either. But whenever I have God as my hero, I instantly become very special to God. Well, anyhow, the story. The story, they saw him, meaning the brothers, they see him from afar, and before he came near, they had conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Let's throw him into the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands by saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, just throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might read that. And then what Reuben meant was he wanted to come back and rescue him you know, out of their hand to restore him to his father at a later time. So Reuben has plans to go, you know, rescue him. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, he said, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And the brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him up out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to his brothers and he said, the boy is gone. Where shall I go? <laughs> well, they took Joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and they dipped the robe in blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and they said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. End scene for just a moment. So in this scene, the brothers are dastardly, and they are definitely planning Joseph's demise. They want to kill this guy, and it is Cain and Abel deja vu all over again. But Reuben does emerge onto the scene because he means well. He, you know, steps forward and he said, no, 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 let's not take his life. Let's just throw him in the pit, you know, let's, and just leave him there to die. And then Reuben has every intention of coming back to the pit to rescue him and then take him back to his dad. Okay. But then, you know, when Joseph does come to the brothers, Reuben's not around, um, apparently. Well, and they strip him. Well, no, he is around. Uh, they, they strip him, everybody strips him of his robe, throws him into the pit, and in the pit there was no water, and we can assume that Joseph was wearing a robe because it was probably chilly outside. So now we have 
Joseph, who is cold and lonely and without water in a pit. Cold Joseph. But Joseph's coldness is is way outdone by his brother's coldness. The coldness that they have to sit down and eat while their brother is, you know, practically naked and cold and without water in a pit. And there they are enjoying a feast. These dudes are cold. And then Judah, Judah oddly sticks up for his brother, Joseph. And this gets weird because Judah says, you know, let's not kill our brother. Let's not let him die. Let's actually sell him. Let's get something out of this. You know, we don't want our hands to have blood on them. He is our brother after all. So Judah has some sort of good intention, but does he have a heart? Does he have a heart of gold? Well, he might not have a heart of gold, but he has a heart of silver. And, and uh, well, Judah somehow, you know, steps in to do something good for Joseph. Well, Reuben comes back onto the scene, and it seems like the brothers did not fill Reuben in because Reuben is clueless. Reuben now heads to the pit later on, so he must not have been there um, because he doubled, maybe doubled back around. Anyhow, after the whole transaction is, is done, Joseph is now gone with the Midianites and the Ishmaelites. Reuben comes to the pit, and he's like, oh, my gosh. And so he, he goes back to the brothers. He's like, oh, my God, the boy's gone. Where am I supposed to go? Reuben is absolutely clueless here. And for some reason, the brothers excluded him. Maybe they thought that he would foil the plan. Maybe they sniffed him out. You know, maybe they thought he was a rat, you know, because they seem to be, you know, good at sniffing out the rats. You know, snitches get stitches, maybe. But anyhow, Reuben was was not in the calcula, you know, the the big calculation and and you know the whole ordeal here. Well, anyhow. And, and, and at the end of the scene is, is that the brothers are cold and calculating as they kill a goat, dip it in blood, tear it to shreds, and then they go before their dad with a straight face, and they say this, which is just the heart of a killer, right, that can keep a straight face, and they say, hey, we found this. Can you identify whether or not this is your son's robe or not? Cold, baby, cold. And then the scene ends. Israel does identify it, and he says, this is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is with, without doubt torn to pieces. Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son so many days. And his sons and his daughters rose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said, no, I'll go down to Sheol uh, mourning my son. So his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Pontifer, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard. So the scene ends with their father in absolute pieces. Um, he's torn apart. He's torn his garments. He is mourning. Um, we expect this because he did love Joseph the most. And, and, and now the brothers seem to be enjoying the moments where, you know, dad is, is distraught, you know? It seems like the brothers are saying, well, you deserve this. Cold, baby, cold. And then Joseph, though, Joseph is in Egypt. He's been sold to Pontifer, an officer of Pharaoh and, and, and captain of the guard. So Joseph is in Egypt. And what we have here is the beginning of God putting together a really 
great story. So we're going to end our time right there, but what do we take out of this story? What do we get so far? What should we build, you know, and, and take away from this? Well, number one, the idea that God gives us an average Joe because God is the actual hero. And all biblical heroes um, are actually God. Every character is has a hero that is actually God. God does all the heavy lifting in the Bible, and every human is special when it comes to God, when God is their hero. And so the Bible's aim is to bring you to God. The Bible is simply amazing in this way. It's mammoth in its accomplishments in, in helping us to see that we too can have a special relationship with God. If Joseph can have a special relationship with God, we can have a special relationship with God. And God's fingerprints are all over this story. Um, God's story is going to keep going on for another 1,600 years. And what's amazing is that the fingerprints of the story that we have here are going to form the story around Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by that. So at the end of it all, it's Judah that rises up as a brother to somehow save his brother by offering him as a slave uh, and taking money um, to the Midianites uh, and, and selling him down to Egypt. So Judah, as you know, a brother of the twelve, you know, steps in and and sells Joseph off in an effort to help him for some silver pieces, and that ought to sound very familiar to us, because in the new part of the Bible, the story of Jesus Christ, God, the real hero of the story, we're going to find that Jesus is also betrayed or sold, you know, by Judah. Now, in the text, it says Judas, but the reason why the text says Judas is because that's the Greek word for Judah. It's still the same name. So in the story of Jesus Christ, there's a Judah among the brotherhood of 12 that's going to sell out his brother for pieces of silver in the guise of somehow helping him. Because remember, Judas probably thought that he was helping Jesus come out of, you know, his role as the Messiah, to sack Rome, to do something big, that Judas was probably frustrated that Jesus was willingly going to his own death. But that's the beauty of the Bible, is that 1,600 years go by, and all the fingerprints of God's story start getting put onto the story of Jesus Christ. Why? To bring the whole Bible together as a unity, to bring the whole message together as the same message. The Bible is not a story of human triumph or braggadocio. The Bible is a record of God's triumph over human failure and human sin. And so God's fingerprints in these old, you know, in this old part of the story get firmly placed into the scene of the Jesus story. Why? So that we would once again see that God is the true hero. 
Only God could put together a story of unwilling participants, people that don't even know how they are fitting into the story, and that this story could continue to be written down to the point where that part of the story starts emerging in the new part of the story with people who are living 1,600 years later. This is why I say the Bible is unmatched. There is nothing like the Bible whatsoever. And since there is nothing like the Bible whatsoever, we need to hear the message. And the message is very simple. And that is God is offering us up a clear view that we ought to make God our hero, that we need to cling to God as the only hero that we need. And when we make God the only hero that we need, then we truly, every single person, all billions of people um, across the planet, become very special and known to God when God is our hero. And once again, can we imagine how great the world would be if everybody truly put God up, the real, the living God, the God, Jesus Christ, as hero? Well, anyhow, we got more in the story to come. Catch you next time.